All right, so flip to Ecclesiastes 5 if you haven't. We're going to take a big chunk of Scripture today. Um, we're going to cover chapter 5 and chapter 6. 6 is fairly short, um, but we're kind of going to go through it very quickly, and I'm going to make some observations as we go. Uh, but the theme, it, you know, Ecclesi- like any book of the Bible, frankly, you could divvy it up however you want. The, the chapter numbers came later, so... You know, it's kind of subjective in large part. So I just chose to do it this way, and um, I've done it differently in the past. But I think uh, I think you'll see the train of thought today. Let's uh, let's pray together, and then we'll we'll dig in. Our Father and God, we ask and pray that you would uh, that you would guide us and direct us um, this very day as we seek to know your Word, to to grow closer um, into the image and likeness of your Son. Uh, we want the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, and so we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. So, we've been exploring basically the, the limits of vanity <laughs> in the world, um, thanks to Koholeth, our preacher. And he's basically searched high and low, trying to make sense of all of it. Uh, remember, Solomon is presumably our writer, and he had it all. He had the wisdom, he had the wealth, um, he, he was... Uh, you know, he, he had reached the top, if you will, the pinnacle of all things. So he's trying to make sense of it all. At the core of his subtle lamentation, I think you could call it a lamentation, is basically the human problem of autonomy and, and the terrible fruit of it as it pertains to life in this world. If you're going to go your own way, what is it going to look like? Well, probably not. It's not going to be good. So he kind of teases that out. This section, though, though seemingly long, um, I think it does fit together because the preacher goes right after the superficiality of autonomous religion and how surfacy it is and how it's not a deep and abiding, grounded religion. It's very surfacy. And we can call it the religion at the periphery. It's the outer edge. It's just sort of the hat tip to religion. Live your life your own way, that sort of thing. So let's quickly, we're just going to read through um, and I'm going to make comments as I go, but I invite you to follow along if you can. I'm, I'm using the NASB, but follow along as we go, and, and I'm going to piece it together for you, so to speak. So, chapter 5, verse 1. He says, Guard your steps as you go to the house of God, and draw near to listen, rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are doing, that they are doing evil. And the question is, what is the sacrifice of fools? Well, he tells us, Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. Note that. Don't be hasty in word or impulsive in thought. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. So, superficial religion excels at verboseness. Brevity is better. Verbose is vain. Uh, Superficial religion begins when we approach God as though he were hard of hearing. Um, If only we would just say more, say it louder, and then maybe he could hear us. Um, In a fit of panic, the religious person, he hastily hurries his heart, to alliterate for a moment, in order to basically carelessly petition himself to God. Now the truth is, the, the foolish person in this situation, the fool, fools do not want to actually obey God as much as they just want to dump on God. That sort of mindset. That's, that's the issue here. But God is in heaven, he says, which means your unrestrained fakery, you may fool your friends, but you will not fool the living God. He's in heaven, he does not, he's not, um, 
he's not impressed by you and your words. Verse 3, for the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. Superficial religion results in impatience and a haphazard approach to God. Haphazard, non-reverent approaches to God lead to an overt concern with one's own affairs. All right? You are so concerned about yourself that when you approach God, you approach Him like He was Sally on the prayer chain who you can't wait to gossip to next. When the world is on your shoulders and everything rests on you because you can't help but control everything, you are thus impatient in prayer. You are not reverent towards God. So you basically flood the throne room of God with prayer while your heart is obviously a long ways from the Lord. You're just chatty Kathy. Poor Kathy, if your name's Kathy. So the fool, the fool daydreams, he talks about dreams here, he daydreams about something better. Fools spend their time daydreaming. And the fool also uses way too many words to, in his careless approach to God. All right, so he's building this argument about superficial religion. These are just some of the initial things. Verse 4. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Superficial religion at the periphery is foolish. It is dumb, he says. Verbose prayers lead to verbose vows, none of which the fool ever intends to follow through with. So what does James tell us? And Jesus himself, we've already talked about this in James, let your yes be yes and your no be no. That's how it should be. Or if you prefer Yoda, do or no do, no try. (laughs) So God, God expects our actions to align with our words. And frankly, fools do not care that this is the case. Superficial religious proponents, they don't care. They don't care that their actions don't align with their words. They don't care that they make rash vows and never intend to fulfill their word. So it's, it's better, he says, to do something having never promised you would do it than to make a fuss about something you never intend to actually do. We might also call this hypocritical religion. You get it. Verse 6. Do not let your speech cause you to sin and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. So those who indulge themselves in a superficial religion at the periphery, they love to dream. What does dreaming do? What does daydreaming do? It helps you escape from reality. So you, you, you nervously hand ring, oh, if only I had millions of dollars. Oh, if only I had this. And you daydream. Why are you doing it? Because you're escaping from reality. You're actually escaping from the dominion mandate that God has given for you to work. So you just kind of throw your hair, hands up. You know, I, I, I'm tired. I don't have all these things that on my plate. I'm overwhelmed. I'm just going gonna, gonna to daydream. I'm going to check out of life. Fools like this don't want to be held accountable. They don't want to be held accountable, especially to God. And they don't want anyone to know that their lives are constantly marked by lack of follow-through. The messenger here in verse 6, it's interesting why he would bring that up. The messenger here is the priest in the temple. Uh, especially in the Greek language, angelos is a word you could translate angel or messenger. 
So there's you know, sometimes translation issues with that. Um, but here, I think that's who Solomon is going after. When you, when you talk too much, you end up telling your conversation partner that it was a mistake. You use more words to cover up your wordiness. As I like to say, just drop the shovel. You're digging the hole too deep. If you said you were going to do something that's making a vow, do it. Don't make excuses for why you failed to follow through. Instead of doing all of what the preacher has said, he says we should fear God. The antidote to all of that is fearing God, revering Him, adoring Him, considering His holiness and your not-so-holiness. So integrity, for example, is rooted in either a fear of God or a fear of man. It's always rooted in one of those two things. And you all here know which one should drive you. Verse 8 and 9. If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. Uh, just a side note, Virginia you know, being a classic case here of, uh, shall we say, chaos. <laughs> there are a lot of other adjectives we could use. But we should not be shocked at the sight. For one official watches over another official, um, lesser magistrates, and there are higher officials over them. After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. Superficial religion is naive. It is naive and it ignores justice. Um, I would argue that by and large, given the church's response to the abortion holocaust, we have a naivety problem. Um, we ignore justice. That's superficial religion. Instead, we should promote, obviously we harp on that a lot, we should pursue justice. We ought not to be surprised by the injustice, Okay, so don't be shocked by it, nor should we participate in it. There is a third way. True religion finds a way to fix it, to promote healthy, God-glorifying social justice. So kingdom people are problem solvers, not problem fussers. We are problem solvers, not problem fussers. Far too many people, given dispensational theology, thank you, <laughs> but no thanks, um, are more of the problem fussers. We, we, oh, things are so bad, things are so bad, we're, we can't do much about it, so we're, we're going to fuss about it, but, but our theology is consistent with it, so we're actually happy it's happening, because then we're going to you know, go away and not have to deal with it. Nonsense. We're kingdom people, which means we're, we're problem solvers. Look at verses 10, 11, and 12. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves abundance with, is it, with, with its income. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. He talked about that earlier, about vexation. More, more, more wisdom, more vexation. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but, but, his full stomach, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. Interesting proverb. Superficial religion elevates the gift without ever elevating the giver, and it does all of that without counting the cost. If you have been blessed in your life and you have not yet named it and thanked God for it, you may be participating in superficial religion. Thank God for the gift and elevate God the giver. More money, more problems, as some particular poets have once said. <laughs> you can have a full stomach, and guess what? You can have an empty heart. You can have a full bank account and have a depleted heart. You can have a heart full of contentment 
And what's in your stomach isn't much of a matter or concern to you because you're a thankful person. See, God gives us gifts to enjoy, absolutely. But if we try to take those gifts and enjoy them in our own way, as in selfishly consume, that sort of thing, um, you know, look at this great gift that I have. Wow, it's mine. I did this. Sort of the Deuteronomy 8 problem. (laughs) Thank God, otherwise you're going to think that your hand and your might got you this. We have to be able to thank God on His terms and do things in God's way. Otherwise, we'll take the gift and we'll turn it into an immediate curse. We have this uncanny ability to take a blessing and fashion it into a curse very quickly. And the way you do that is you don't thank God for the gift. You don't seek to worship Him with the gift. So, in short, gifts are meant to elevate God, not man. (laughs) Look at verse 13. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment, and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will, will, will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of, his, fruit of his labor that he cannot carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, but he will die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Throughout his life he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. Socialism, for example, is not being uh, promoted here. (laughs) So don't take the text and bend it into oblivion. Please resist that impulse. Riches become ethically problematic when those riches aren't stewarded and used for the glory of God. So instead of using his riches, this man, his riches used him. If, if one won't serve God, why toil for the wind? He says, it's vanity, it's breath. If you're, if you're going to toil, if you're going to put in all this effort, toil for the kingdom in service of others, not yourself. There's far more joy in that. Far more joy. Uh, you came into this world with nothing, you leave with nothing, he says. That's how, this, that's how it works. So don't hoard serve. This is true religion. And frankly, I've met someone recently, and he's in that same predicament. Has all, anything you can imagine, money, wealth, and he is depressed. Does not have the joy of the Lord at all. And I'm just, this is Ecclesiastes. This is what it does to you. Verse 18. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting to, to uh, good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. For this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life, because God keeps him occupied with gladness of his heart. I love these verses. This is, this is the core of his argument. So the man who is occupied with joy does not have, to have time to occupy himself with worry. So a, a, a joyful man is not a hand-wringer worried about the future. He's not nervous about the future at all. Uh, superficial religion does not allow a man to stop and smell the proverbial roses. In fact, superficial religion, uh, instead of smelling them, you walk by and see the roses and you shriek in horror because they have thorns. That's the difference. 
But the gift of work, the gift of labor is meant to be enjoyed. It's something you should all enjoy day in, day out. Um, not hoarded and um, and by hoarding, I don't necessarily mean just the acquisition of more and more, but hoarding as in like your propensity to want to selfishly accumulate for yourself, that idea. And of course, it's certainly not to be worshipped. So when we, when we don't enjoy what God has given us, we're opening the door wide open for ingratitude, despair, worry, and covetousness. You just open that door immediately. Those who don't enjoy the gifts are those who think they need much more in order to be happy. It's never enough. It's never going to be enough. See, contentment sees the provision of little. You see the provision of little. Envy sees a lack of abundance. Whatever you have, if you're content, you can see. Even if it's little, you can be content with it because you know where it came from. But, but not superficial religion. You turn that into envy, and instead of seeing what little you have, you see how much you don't have. And then your life goes down a track you don't want to go. Now, I'm going to bear with me. We're going to read through chapter 6 and follow the argument, and then we'll kind of unpack it from there. Chapter 6, verse 1. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is prevalent among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that his soul lacks nothing of all he desires, yet, listen to this, this is worth underlining and noting in your Bible if you do that, God has not empowered him. Note that, God has not empowered him to eat from them, for a foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and a severe affliction. If a man fathers a hundred children, we already talked about the man who, who uh, had a son and couldn't provide, well, let's Exponential here. If a man has a hundred children and lives many years, however many they be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things and he does not even have a proper burial, then I say, better the miscarriage than he, for it comes in futility and goes into obscurity. And its name is covered in obscurity. It never sees the sun and it never knows anything. It is better off than he. Even if the other man lives a thousand years twice, and does not enjoy good things, do not all go to one place? All a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage does the poor man have, knowing how to walk before the living? What the, eye see, what the eyes see is better than what the soul desires. This too is futility and a striving after wind. Whatever exists has already been named, and it is known what man is, for he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he is. For there are many words which increase futility. See why I chose the section? He started about words, and now he's ending about words. What then is the advantage to a man? For, he know, for who knows what is, what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? He will spend them like a shadow." For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? All right. There are pitfalls to superficial religion, again. And at the core is this issue. He even brings up health and wealth um, and food and, and appetite. Um, it's possible to have a rich man um, with the world, as his, world at his fingertips. I mean, he can buy whatever he wants. He's powerful. It's possible to have that situation Yet God has not empowered him to eat, that is, to enjoy the fruit. You literally can have it all. You can have all the power, all the authority, all the money, 
all the control. And if God doesn't give you the empowerment to eat it, it's vanity. It's fruitless. You can't even enjoy it. God, God gave this man a mouth, but he has no taste buds to enjoy the fruit of his labor. He can't even taste it. See, he has no one, and thus every, everything comes up empty. He is an afflicted man, despite the Mercedes Benz in his car, in his, in his um, driveway, and his fancy suits. It is also possible to have a hundred children, to live a long, 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 long time, die without a proper burial, he says. Did anybody even come to the funeral? That's the idea. And wish that you had never been born. Whether you, whether you live a thousand years or one year, you come into this world with nothing and you leave this world with nothing. It's what's in between that matters, right? See, your health, look at verse 7. If a man labors to feed himself, yet he is never satisfied. He can eat, he can eat the choicest foods. He's so rich, he imports like the most organic of organic from like, you know, the plains of Italy or something, wherever. He can import it daily. He just puts in an order, bang, bang, he makes it happen. A, a private jet flies it to him, right? You can, you can have all of that, but his appetite is never contented. See, we, we labor each day. I think this is the connection he's making. We labor each day, and what, do we, what else do we do each day? We eat each day. And either we will thank God for our work and for our food, because the food, in a sense, is the fruit of your work. You know, you're the bread maker. Um, you, you work and you enjoy. And what do you, why, what's one of the most important reasons that we work? We, we work so that we can feed ourselves and our family. But if we won't, if, <laughs> so you, you can do all that. We labor each day, we, we eat each day, and either we're going to thank God for our work and for our food, or we're going to worship ourselves and we're going to come to despise both of those things. See, the section ends in verse 11, um, where we started in chapter 5. Words increase fertility. Why? Well, I think the reason is fools do not enjoy God's goodness in the world. See, remember, un unbelievers have the car, but they don't have any keys. If you remember the analogy, they have a car, but they don't have the keys. This means that their, their frustration may lead them to kick the tire and, and say some bad words. <laughs> but Christians, sometimes we're no different Instead of enjoying the drive, perhaps inviting our friends along, two are better than one, remember from last week. Um, instead of that, we, we may uh, curse passerbyers, um, or worse, we'll complain that our car isn't as nice as the other car. Either way, you have just a few years. God gives the gift. He gives the power to enjoy the gift. That is the mark of true religion. So, we only get one life to live, right? Issued at conception, and thus we have a decision to make. Either we will expend all of our energies and focus on the pursuits of human autonomy, or we will expend ourselves on God's law, theonomy, pursuing God in glad obedience. Those are always the options. That's the whole book's antithesis right here. So our job, we know, is to serve the living God, right? Kids, your job is to serve the living God. You're a child, that's your task. That's the only thing you have to concern yourself with, day in, day out. I'm going to wake up, I'm going to serve the living God. So, simple, right? <laughs> simple, yet difficult. We've, we've been brought into this covenant of God. We've been brought into the dominion covenant. We're supposed to work and keep the garden world. We know that from Genesis. And our normal assumption, though, 
Our normal assumption is that all of our working, all of our keeping, all of our creativity, all our diaper changing, which may not amount to creativity, it's more like cleanup, but you get it. All of that day-to-day -day thing, we know that the normal assumption is that that is going to result in a heap of blessing. It's going to. Your work that God gives you, the fruit of your labor, all of that is going to normally increase and become a heap of blessing. But the question is, how do we deal with that blessing? That's the issue. I think the preacher chooses so, to talk about wealth so much because wealth is the normal result of human labor. It's a normal thing. Um, when, when God created us in his image, he created us as economic creatures. We just are. That's part and parcel to what, what we do. It's what it means to be made in the image of God is to be a productive human being, to be creative, to labor, to work. God enjoys it. He, he enjoys progress when it's aligned with him. So again, he, we know this, but to reiterate, he didn't make us to work for him as though he were this unruly slave owner and we're simply you know, pawns in his petty hands. No, God is creative. God is interested in economic productivity, and thus he has made us to behave this way. It's instilled in us because it's instilled in God. It's who he is. It's his nature. So he, he's created us for joy in that process. So we are, as I've emphasized repeatedly, supposed to work and rest, work and rest, and do so with joy saturating every moment of it. Now, true religion understands this. True religion spends its time in the storehouses of God's unending joy. That's just where we situate ourselves. And usually, I'm not saying I've mastered this. <laughs> I don't think any of us have. But usually, when something adverse happens, our normal result isn't to praise God in that moment. It's usually to either self-loathe <laughs> or pity ourselves, or cry out to God in, in anger. And not that you shouldn't, you know, the psalmist is all over the place on that, David himself. God can handle your emotions, right? But usually our first thought is, I'm not going to take this opportunity to be joyful. I'm just going to mourn for a while. And there is a time for that. The trouble is, I think as we've seen, Superficial religion stems from this assumption that man exists to serve himself. Trading the image of God for an image of his own imagination, the superficial religionist wants only that part of God which he deems suitable and to his self-determined will. That's why he'll still talk to God and he'll just go off on it, on, on God. But he only wants a little bit of God. He doesn't want all of God. So he talks a lot. He makes a lot of vows. He can't follow through, so he's always making excuses. He creates wealth. Remember, even, even unbelievers are given that gift of wealth accrual. But he does all of it so as to spend it on himself. And the motivating factor is thinking that that's where the happiness lies. People genuinely think the happiness lies in more money, more assets. Those are blessings, and we should pursue them as Dominion Covenant creatures. But that's not where the joy lies. The joy is in all of it, in all of God's blessing. So the fool, his operating motive is consumption, not stewardship. There's a difference. 
consumption, not stewardship. You know that you have a religion at the periphery, at the outside, not in the inside, when you need a lot of words and a lot of wealth in order to find meaning in the vanity. This is alone is vanity, the preacher says. And here's the thing. It's going to sound like I'm going to go on a rabbit trail, but I'm not, so hang tight. The, the secret to getting out of the rut of vanity is realizing that the vanity isn't a rut to overcome, but a blessing to enjoy. We've talked about this in different ways. So, so, so you have a mouth, but you have to have taste buds in order to enjoy the food. Otherwise, it's all bland, right? No one likes bland food. But how do we get, the, the key is though, how do we get to the enjoyment? That's the challenge. Because tomorrow's Monday, and some of you may already be lamenting that. But how do we get to the enjoyment? He told us, look at verses 18 and 19 again. It's worth reading again. Here is what I've seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor, which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life, which God has given him. For this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. So we're supposed to, we're supposed to eat, which thankfully we're going to do soon. We're supposed to drink. We're supposed to enjoy one's self in one's labor. So you only have a few years, he says. You better mark it with joy. You only have a few years. And we know here that God empowers us to, to eat. God empowers us to receive the reward. That's why, honestly, like, I don't pray before every meal, but that's partly why we do it. Not because we're magically blessing the food. You know, it's like <laughs> the meme that has, like, the, the cheeseburger with the donut on it and all this stuff, and it's like, God, we ask that you would bless this food to our bodies. <laughs> it's like, well, that may, in fact, wreak havoc on your body. But we're not, asking, we're not asking God to bless the food as much as we're asking um, God to bless us as we bless him in the gift of the food. That's part of the reason why, why we should do that. Because the food is the result of the work. And we thank God for both because we want to enjoy both. So it's not a magical thing. God bless this food to our body. That tends to be our prayer. I don't even think we necessarily should say that. I think we should just say, God, thank you for the, that we can enjoy the fruit of our labor. That's what we should say. So God, it's, the, the empowerment to enjoy the things God gives you isn't something we muster up. It's something we receive. Does that make sense? We, we receive it. And like all good gifts, you have to have the humility to take it without developing a debtor's ethic. Right? Where, oh, you, you gave me this gift, great. Oh, I owe you a gift now. No, 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 no. It's not a gift if it's that. Debtor's ethic is a real thing. A, a gift is a gift, and there are no strings, otherwise it's not a gift. But how do we get there? How do we get to the point of enjoyment? I, I had fun with this this week. <laughs> so we get to the enjoyment of God's grace, um, and, and one, of the, one, of the, one of God's greatest graces is repentance. We don't think of it that way, but it is. It is a gift from God, he says in, uh, Paul says in Ephesians 2. We don't want to go the route of superficial religion, you know, a religion, a religion that just sits at the outer edges. You know, you clean the outside of the cup, but the inside's dirty, Jesus says in Matthew 23. We don't want that. We don't want something that does nothing for the middle. And, and if we're not 
if we're going to stay away from that, we have to fight against things. We have to actively fight against envy. We have to fight against sloth. We have to fight against verboseness, making rash vows, all the things he's listed here. So in short, the only way out of superficial religion is true religion. And unlike superficial religion, true religion involves the grace of repentance in your life. So we want to eat, we want to eat the fruit. That's the gift, right? And we also want to taste the fruit and enjoy the fruit. That's a gift as well. So Christian doctrine teaches us that apart from Christ, we need a death. Think about that. Apart from Christ, we need a death. There has to be in the credit column of our heavenly bank statement, a credit of death. And in Christ, that's what we have. Follow the connection. His death is our death, right? This means that in Christ, we have died to envy. Um, so we can go on with our lives dying to envy. In Christ, we have died to lust. So you can now go on the rest of your life dying to lust. This is that whole definitive sanctification and progressive sanctification. You are definitively declared to be holy. Guess what you're supposed to do? Go and be holy. You're supposed to become like that which you are already made to be. So in Christ, we've died to the need to talk God's ears off with our empty platitudes. And as you might guess, the reason we can do that now, we've died to that so we can go on the rest of our lives dying to our incessant need to want to just talk God's ears off as if he's just our psychological dumping ground rather, rather than enjoying fellowship with him. So here's the thing. If we don't die, follow this. If we don't die to our unrighteousness today, we will die by our righteousness tomorrow. If we don't die to our righteousness today, we will die by our unrighteousness tomorrow. Let me explain. If you, you have to die to the right things in your life. If you don't mortify the real and actual sins, you will immediately be enticed by a surface religion. You will craft your own set of righteousness, your own set of justice, your own standards, and convince yourself that God is in it and that it's a good thing. Okay? If you don't die to that sort of self-concocted righteousness, which is actually unrighteousness, we'll die by tomorrow. So, so you have to die to the right things. We must repent for the things that are actually wrong, things we actually had done wrong or thought wrong or said wrong. You have to actually repent for those things. And guess what else you have to repent for? You have to repent for the things that you think are right based on your standard. That's the issue. So for example, you might find something forbidden in God's law to be rather agreeable, but then you might find something else disagreeable. I'll give you an example. A superficial religionist, an autonomist, might find himself to keep the Sabbath day rather vigorously, all the while covetousness ravishes his heart. See the difference? The outward's there, but the inward's shot. It's gone. This is why it's superficial. His religion has never taken root. It's only on the edges. It is the crust of the pie, if you will, but there's no filling. And who likes that kind of pie? Let me close with these couple final thoughts. This is why... In the Bible, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Sacrifice only is superficial religion. See, left to themselves, men and women will always be tempted to externalize their religion long before it's internalized. It's always the temptation. 
Theonomy is the internalization of the law by the Spirit. Autonomy is the externalization of man's law by himself. So one is, one is entirely works-based and at the surface. The other is grace-based and it's absolutely at the center of your life. So how do we respond? Well, we're supposed to die well. Christian, if you are a Christian, you know how to die well. You know how to mortify or to kill your envy, your greed, your temptation to be a law unto yourself. You know how to do this because guess what you've been given? The greatest gift of all, Jesus Christ. You have his death, you have his burial, and you have his resurrection. And because you have these things, you can put all the superficiality to rest. You can nail it to the cross, you can tuck it away in the tomb, and you can leave it behind you as you walk out of the tomb with Christ the King. So the victory is ours because Christ is ours. There's no need to be wordy in your prayers. Jesus condemns that. There's no need for that. No, there's no need to lament the, the vanity. Tomorrow's Monday, oh woe is me. In Christ we have the fruit of our labor, and we in Christ we can taste the victory. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Uh, God, we, we give you the glory. We give you the praise. We thank you for your word. We thank you that, that um, Solomon was wise enough to go and explore the, um, some, some of the idiosyncrasies of life. We thank you that, um, that you gave him wisdom. We thank you that Jesus is, is our wisdom, so we trust in him. Uh, Lord Jesus, we ask and pray that you would be honored in this nation, in our lives, in this church, in our families. Um, we need the miracle of your Spirit's work. We need the gift of repentance. We need the grace of repentance. And so, uh, Father, would you help us by your Spirit to, to turn away from superficial religion and cling to Christ who gives us true religion. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen.